Hey, I'm Andy. If you don't know me, it's probably because I'm not famous. But I did start a men's grooming company called Harry's. The idea for Harry's came out of a frustrating experience I had buying razor blades. Most brands were overpriced, overdesigned, and out of touch. At Harry's, our approach is simple. Here's our secret. We make sharp, durable blades and sell them at honest prices for as low as $2 each. We care about quality so much that we do some crazy things, like buy a world-class German blade factory. Obsessing over every detail means we're confident in offering a 100% quality guarantee. Millions of guys have already made the switch to Harry's, so thank you if you're one of them. And if you're not, we hope you give us a try with this special offer. Get a Harry starter set with a five-blade razor, weighted handle, shave gel, and a travel cover, all for just three bucks, plus free shipping. Just go to harrys.com and enter 5,000 at checkout. That's harrys.com, code 5,000. Enjoy. Colonel Cedric Layton is back. He's founder and president of Cedric Layton Associates. They're a strategic risk and leadership consultancy serving global companies and organizations. Now, he founded the company in 2010, but prior to that, he served in the U.S. Air Force for 26 years as an intelligence officer. He attained the rank of colonel. He held assignments worldwide at every level of command. That includes tactical deployed units, the U.S. Special Ops Command, national agencies, as well as the joint staff in the Pentagon. More than a pleasure to have back with us on this Thursday, Colonel Cedric Layton. Colonel Layton, Thank you for joining us. Good afternoon, sir. Good afternoon, Leslie. It's a pleasure to be with you again. It's so weird because you and I have never met in person, yet I feel like I've known you my whole life. <laughs> and you've definitely well, the feeling is mutual. <laughs> you've definitely taught me some uh, very uh, a lot of uh, lessons. Um, the president called on Americans yesterday, more than sixty nations yesterday, to join the fight against violent extremism. He said they had to counter the ideology of ISIS and other groups making increasingly sophisticated appeals to young people uh, around the world. We also heard from somebody in the State Department talking about jobs. Colonel, do you feel that here, especially in the United States, the desire to be right and the fighting politically is muddying the waters and getting in the way of coming up with a strategic plan, not only to defeat ISIS, but to cut down on those joining them, A, and B, if we reduce their numbers, we can slow them down in how much territory they're acquiring and as quickly as they do, correct? Oh, absolutely, yeah. We could certainly slow them down uh, if we cut their numbers. And, you know, quite frankly, to your first point, yes, absolutely. I think the political uh, discourse is uh, is hampering our efforts to reach that strategic consensus that you need. You don't have to be, you know, completely in lockstep with everything everybody else says, but at least have a broad idea of uh, what you want to achieve. And uh, you, quite frankly, it's it's something that we need to do if we're going to confront ISIS. And yes, there is an economic component, there is a military component, there's a strategic component, and obviously a diplomatic component. So yeah, all of these things have to uh, be part of the mix. They have to be part of not only the national conversation, but they have to be part of the final strategy that we put together to go after ISIS. And I think it's very important uh, that we look at this in a way where we say, uh, you know, look at each of the different things. Some things will be able to affect more quickly than others. Uh, some things, uh, you know, come up, uh, they're targets of opportunity, as we would say in the military. And you go after those targets of opportunity, you have to be flexible enough to do so. But uh, there are, you know, there 
there, there are truths everywhere, and there also are falsehoods everywhere. But the basic idea is that there's an economic uh, cause of this. There's also a psychological cause, and certainly uh, there's a, a military aspect to this. So, yeah, it's uh, it's all of the above, and we need to act as if that's the case because it's the truth. Uh, But the president and others, uh, Jay Johnson and others, have talked about this as a generational challenge. Uh, The president specifically speaking about undercutting the Sunni militants groups uh, of ISIS's message and uh, blunting uh, the dark uh, appeal. Uh, Also, we had a State Department uh, spokeswoman uh, talking about creating jobs. Is that really that far-fetched? I mean, isn't it easy? You know, are uh, those easier prey to be radicalized by ISIS when they don't have a job, when their bellies aren't full, when there aren't the opportunities, when there's a disenfranchisement, as we have seen in the Somali Muslim community in Minneapolis here and the Algerian French community uh, in France and some other places worldwide. Uh, oh, yes, absolutely, Leslie. When you look at uh, you know the different insurgencies throughout history, the components that you deal with are the ones that, uh, you know, if you're looking at, for example, the so-called foot soldiers, the rank and file of uh, these uh, these organizations, yeah, very much uh, they're affected by economic dislocation, disenfranchisement, uh, the failure of educational systems to uh, give them uh, opportunities, you know, for later on in life. That does not necessarily apply to the leadership of these organizations, uh, but those people would feel the way they do, you know, basically no matter what was going on in the world in, in many cases. Uh, but for the rank and file, it absolutely fits, and, you know, the leaders would not have uh, the ability to recruit the rank and file if it weren't for the economic and educational dislocations that these people experience. That's, uh, that's absolutely correct. The president has said we are not at war with Islam. Mm-hmm. I believe that to be correct. I also think that th- there are a lot of people on your level that know the president is saying that more than just to uh, you know guide a moral compass or you know to redirect prejudices and hatred. It's essential that the world, the Muslim world, who we need as allies, know that we are clear about that. Because if not, this wedge that could be divided between us and them, Muslims and the rest of the world, could actually negatively impact us with Muslims being the fastest growing religion, 1.6 billion people, and our need to have the Muslim world as our allies and not our enemies. Absolutely. Well, it's essential that uh, we have uh, not only... We not only maintain, but we also cultivate uh, the creation of allies within uh, the Muslim community throughout uh, the entire world. And there are plenty of Muslims uh, throughout uh, the Arab world and really other parts of the world who are very favorably disposed to the U.S. Uh, And we need to make sure that we include them not only in our efforts uh, to to combat Islamic extremism, but also in our efforts to make a better life for them, because if we make a better life for them, or help them make a better life for themselves, better said, uh, they will help us make a better life for us as well. And that's 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 basically what this is all about. And yes, it's very important uh, to uh, you know make sure that everybody understands that uh, you know these are truly extremist groups. They do not represent a majority of the population, but uh, they are very dangerous. And in order to combat them, uh, the best uh, antidote to them is a Muslim antidote, something that uh, you know is created within their culture, within their uh, their social and religious framework. And that's exactly what we need in order to to succeed in this regard. 
Colonel, you've traveled the world uh, much more than I have, even though I'm, I'm pretty well traveled and have lived in other countries. And I know you work with, with, in other countries. Um, honestly, uh, do you feel that the Islamophobia, uh, even though some people don't like that term, is greater here in the United States than uh, other countries in the world? I think it depends on where you go within the U.S. There certainly are elements of the U.S. population who, you know, perhaps because they haven't had interaction uh, with Muslims on a personal basis, uh, you know, they certainly feel uh, a, a negative feeling toward many Muslims or to all Muslims just because they don't know any, anything about them. Uh, but on the other hand, I think we have done a better job in, at least in some of the bigger cities like uh, Washington, you know, perhaps uh, uh, on the West Coast, Los Angeles area, and, and the New York area of integrating Muslims into the broader mainstream of American culture. Uh, now, that it, clearly, that's spotty. It depends on you know where you go, and you know, specific instances are always uh, you know going to going to show some differences in this. But I think we've done a pretty good job of of uh, accepting them, and uh, you know, basically, of many of them accepting our way of life as well. Uh, I think part of the issue is also that there are visible manifestations of difference. Uh, between uh, some observant Muslims and uh, the general population, the general non-Muslim population, and you know it has to do with dress, the you know the wearing of uh, uh, you know the veil and things like that. Uh, but um, people should understand that's uh, you know in many ways those are. Uh, you know, expressions of religious freedom as well, and in many cases it's very important uh, for us to, you know, not only be tolerant of these things, but also to realize uh, that our country was founded on religious freedom, and that allows Muslims to pray the way that they want to pray, and allows us to pray the way that we want to pray. I, I think that, you know, when you compare uh, how we integrate Muslims into our society uh, with what is happening in many parts of Europe, I would say that Generally speaking, we are ahead, certainly, of many parts of continental Europe. Uh, you know, for example, France or Germany, um, we tend to uh, be a bit, uh, bit more inclusive than, than those countries. Although things are changing and things are, are getting better, I think, in many cases. But uh, there is still a long way to go. And I think that disenfranchisement that many Muslims talk about in Europe, uh, in you know, it's continental Europe as well as the U.K., uh, is something that needs to be addressed very carefully by not only the European Union, but also the various national governments as well. Uh, so I would give us, uh, you know, fairly, you know, above average marks, fairly good marks uh, for doing uh, doing the right thing in terms of uh, cultural integration and social integration. Uh, but, you know, we still have a way to go, and there's still a lot of things that need to be uh, examined. But it also calls for tolerance on all sides, and that becomes a significant issue, uh, not only for us at home, but also, you know, for how we do things around the world. And uh, it becomes key to not only uh, understanding, but also uh, in our ability to move forward from what we have right now. We're going to take a break. When we come back, we have some calls. And I want to talk about whether or not we're playing into ISIS hands. And I want to talk about the reality of how dangerous and how widespread they are versus what we might think. Is it actually worse than what we hear or are we hearing it so much we think it's worse than it actually is we're talking with colonel cedric layton let's take some calls and we started out in virginia line three with wendell wendell thank you for uh holding and for joining us good wendell um on this topic i think it's insane i don't know why we're trying to 
you know, understand the terrorists and help them out and give them jobs and everything like that. I mean, I don't understand why our foreign policy in this country, especially when it comes to dealing with terrorists, has to be more complicated than either you're with us or you're against us. Don't start no won't be none. And if you do, we're going to hit you back twice as hard as you hit us. Yeah, but I mean, yeah, but Wendell, 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 listen, listen to listen to the colonel because he has military experience. Colonel, even if you kill every member of ISIS, that doesn't prevent new terrorists from cropping up, which, you know, addressing the economy and, and jobs uh, was a part of the bigger picture of a and B. Are, are we kind of naive to believe and even playing into ISIS hands that we can just, you know, bomb away every problem like this? Well, yeah, you certainly can't uh, bomb away every problem, and I think it's very important to realize that, yes, there are times when the barrel of a gun is the only message that somebody understands. That's absolutely true, and that's why you have militaries and uh, you know other, other elements of force and national power that you can use like that. Uh, but when it comes to those coercive elements of power, you also have to understand what happens next, or at least try to anticipate what happens next. And so when you use something like that, you also have to be prepared to, uh, in essence, pick up the pieces. And, you know, you take, uh, when, when you go into a, a place and you say, okay, these people are against us. They are against us for an ideal, from an ideological standpoint where they absolutely do want to kill us, as is the case with many of the ISIS leaders. Uh, and, of course, that's the philosophy that they're, you know, showing their, their different uh, constituents. Uh, but what, what is very important there is that you have to start sowing the seeds of doubt in their mind. And that doubt can be sowed, yes, from the barrel of a gun, absolutely, but it can also be sown by giving them another opportunity, and that's preferable. Nobody in the U.S. military that I know, at least, wants to mow down a bunch of people for absolutely no reason. Uh, and the reasons have to be, you know, really good for us to engage in, in armed conflict. We also want to make sure that we don't have to go back again. Uh, we want to make sure that we create an environment in which terrorism does not gain root, does not gain a foothold. And you want to go into an area of like the Middle East and say, uh, there is a better way. There are better things that can be done. Sometimes that message has to be subtle. Sometimes that message has to be direct. Uh, and there's always a debate as to, you know, at what time you do one message versus another. But uh, the basic idea is that you have to understand uh, what these people are all about in order to effectively confront them. And, you know, if, if there are times when you do need to use force, then, uh, you know, by all means, you should, uh, you know, clearly understand what you're doing, but you should be able uh, to do that, but then also uh, come back to the root causes and try to fix those root causes as best as possible. And hopefully you can do that with local partners. So it's, it is a matter of understanding. It is a matter of, you know, making sure that people know that, uh, you know, we can be, you know, in the words of one famous Marine general from uh, the Iraq War, we can be your best friend or your worst enemy. And that is, uh, that is really the message that needs to be sent to these folks. And if they understand the best friend part, they're much less likely to be our worst enemy. Let's go to John in Washington, Line 5. Hi, John. Good afternoon. Question or comment? Hi, Leslie. Uh, I, I wanted to, uh, I wanted to state my thoughts. The, the, the Arab Spring when it when it first started, right, it was I think a guy in in Morocco, and he was a street vendor, and he had paid off his his local 
politicians and the local, uh, you know, guys running this and that, and you still could not get hit. he could not get this this business going anywhere, and he was swamped with you know financial debt and everything, and he ended up immolating himself. The thing is, no one's saying that the the United States, I don't think, is going to offer jobs to people in ISIS countries so they won't turn ISIS. They're talking about, you know, the, these these dictatorial uh, uh, regimes, uh, you know, after changing their economic policies. I think that's 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 a part of it. I mean, ISIS ISIS scares the he- the heck out of me because they have funding from the from the you know the the oil that they're that they're stealing and, and, and putting on the black market and, and, of course, hostages. But I heard a latest report that they're actually selling the organs of the people that they kidnap. Well, I, I, Colonel, correct me if I'm wrong. I found that hard to believe because they're, they're making millions with tapping oil, which is, quite frankly, much easier, quicker, and more lucrative. Um, I, I think the organs are probably being harvested and sold by people who stumble upon the bodies that are tossed or left there. Would you agree with me, Colonel? It's, it's possible. I think we don't know enough, Leslie. The the other thing that crossed my mind, and not to get too morbid about it, but it uh, you know it's one of those things that uh, requires a degree of preservation uh, in order to you know for them to be you know useful uh, you know in in the, the next uh, the next stage, and uh, that's that's why you know I think just from a medical perspective and a technical perspective, it would be highly unlikely uh, that somebody you know would have the wherewithal, especially in a combat zone like that. Uh, to transport organs and you know make them viable for you know for transplant, uh, so it's um, yeah I, I'm, I'm a bit skeptical about the reports. But if it if it is true, I think that uh, you know there are there are sporadic perhaps sporadic cases of this, uh, and you know the oil piece is uh, I think still where they're gaining most of the revenues from, but they're being impacted by the lower oil prices, and they're also being impacted by a crackdown on the ability to sell that oil. So because uh, they use the black market and uh, you know are, are using countries like Turkey to uh, to as a conduit for that oil. So there are you know some significant things there. And one thing I wanted to mention about uh, John's comment, um, the situation that he's referring to actually occurred in Tunisia and uh, was with the uh, food vendor who um, emulated him, emulated himself. Uh, and that um, is, it's interesting there, uh, you know, obviously a tragedy because he felt truly, uh, you know, at the mercy of a system that he couldn't control. Uh, but uh, Tunisia has, uh, is actually the only country that has gone through the Arab spring that has a freer government, has held elections, and uh, has been able to achieve a degree of freedom uh, that they hadn't had before as a result of what happened uh, in their version of the Arab Spring. Uh, So that's at least some indication that uh, these kinds of thoughts, these kinds of sentiments uh, for more freedom, uh, more willingness to, uh, you know, change the established order of things, uh, that is is something that, uh, you know, has has succeeded at least there and uh, may be uh, able to be a bit of a beacon for some of the other Arab countries at some point in their histories. Uh, Is the situation with ISIS, quickly, Colonel, because we're up against a break, is the situation with with ISIS better than the media is portraying, worse than the media is portraying? 
I think the media is trying very hard, especially the more responsible outlets are trying really hard uh, to show uh, everything that's going on. So ISIS is uh, impacted by our actions in Iraq, uh, our actions in Syria. They they have been stymied a bit by uh, the airstrikes, but they are still moving forward in places like uh, Kurdistan, uh, where they're affecting the main city of Erbil. Uh, they've been stopped there for the time being, at least. Uh, but they're still very, very dangerous. So I think there's still a big threat. And uh, we also have to watch the fellow travelers that are out there, the people that act on their behalf, although they have no direct connection to ISIS. And we're seeing some of that, obviously, in Europe uh, and in other places where uh, where there have been some terrorist attacks. Absolutely, uh, so Colonel. That, a- absolutely. We are out of time. Sorry to interrupt you, sir. Uh, Colonel Cedric Layton, at Cedric Layton, to follow him on Twitter, website, CedricLayton.com.